I've been promising for a while that if you guys would leave comments on iTunes and SoundCloud that I would go ahead and read them on the air. But I haven't done that in a while, so I figured I'd share this one from Martha's Boy Stanley. The subject says, A dream show for musicians, music lovers, and enthusiasts of amazing storytellers. You know, they say that the only true happiness to be found in this life comes from getting to spend time with the people you love. Simply put, every single one of Otis's shows leave me feeling as if I've just spent an evening hanging out and laughing with warm, wise, and wildly funny friends. It's such a gift. Thank you, Martha's boy Stanley, for the kind words, and thanks to everybody who's been telling their friends and spreading the word. And uh, thank you to everyone who's been leaving comments on iTunes and SoundCloud. And if you keep doing that, I'll try my best to read some of them on the air. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is John Bird. John is a singer and a songwriter and a guitar player who lives right here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about John at johnbird.com. I've known John for about 10 years now, and uh, we've been buddies for a while. And I go see John play probably once every week or two here in Nashville since moving here. And uh, the best way I could describe John is John is a true country singer. If you're a person who likes old school country music, then you really need to know about John. I encourage you to pick up one of his records and get to know him. And uh, it's funny, if you go out to one of his shows here in Nashville, the crowd is made up of other musicians and songwriters. Probably some of the people that you have CDs from already or records, you know, they'll be in the crowd watching John. John will be one of their favorite singers. But John invited me over to his house here in East Nashville on a real cold day, and we sat down and recorded this. Here's John Bird. Yes, well, I grew up in Monroe County, first half of my childhood, Monroe County, about 90 miles north of Mobile. It's the official middle of nowhere in Alabama, I think, except it's a bunch of cool people and good people and hardworking people. Uh, I will say, I just went down there last weekend for my aunt's 100th birthday. 100? 100 years old. And that was a very wonderful, I don't know, it was a really interesting experience because honestly, I've not met, I don't know if I've ever met somebody that was actually 100 years old. I had an Uncle Pew that was 93. Anyway, I don't know how right she lived, but she ain't living wrong. (laughs) <laughs> you don't you don't get to 100 living wrong <laughs> so whatever she's doing you know she's doing it i think the right way but I, I told my brother you know man we we stepped on this sidewalk we went up these stairs over 50 years ago when we were just little guys and uh and my my cousin said well 
she was born here. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay, 50 years? <laughs> That's nothing, you know? <laughs> so uh, that said, it was a very special experience. But uh, but Monroe County is an interesting place. That That's where Harper Lee is from. And uh, and that from Monroeville, I grew up in Frisco City, a little town of about twelve hundred people. But it's amazing in that part of the world, and I don't know if Indiana is like this too. But um, I grew up in a town of twelve hundred people, and I was a town person, you might say, a city guy. And uh, and people that rode the bus to school, those were the country people, as if. Me living in a town of 1,200 in the middle of nowhere of Alabama is somehow urban or urbane. My grandfather's lawyer was Harper Lee's daughter. Harper Lee's daughter. I'm sorry. Uh, Harper Lee's sister. And, uh, and my mom went with, uh, with her father to, my grandfather to, I can't remember uh, Ms. Lee's, initials or first name but uh it's harper lee's sister and the 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 office was completely cluttered a total mess and my mom thought this how can this person be a good lawyer you know if if everything's just a mess and whatever my grandfather needed she without a hesitation dug under something and found exactly what she was looking for and it was just one of those kind of my mom had a realization oh well she has a system <laughs> her her chaos has some kind of me- method. So, uh, but it was it's just a small community. Uh, at the end of my uncle's life, he was at the uh, retirement home uh, with uh, Harper Lee. I mean, it's a small, it's just a small community. My dad had an auto parts business on Loop Road, and then later on Crescent Ridge Road in Tuscaloosa. And the store on Crescent Ridge Road was close to Holt, and uh, which is just outside of Tuscaloosa. And it was also close to a kind of a government housing uh, development complex, whatever you want to say. And so lots of poor folks, primarily African-American, but not exclusively, lived in, in this area. And so once a month, as people's uh, social security checks and, and uh, income ran out at the end of the month, when they would get their social security check, they would come to my dad's store and buy auto parts to, to fix the water pump, to fix the alternator. And so we had a guy that came in there named uh, Johnny Shines. I knew him as Mr. Shines. And he was just one more customer. It's kind of like we were saying about Harper Lee or, or Bear Bryant. These people are well-known. Maybe you might call famous in a certain definition of that word, but when you live in the same town or when you live in the same community, they're just the other person next door living their life and you're doing your thing. So Mr. Shines would come in well, I, uh, and buy auto parts at least once a month. And so I went to see Bonnie Raitt was opening for someone. And she was a youngster. She was 21, 22. I don't know. I was maybe 14 or 15. And she was terrific, and at one moment in her concert, she brought. She said, I'm going to bring out a person that you people don't know, but you should know, and he lives in your town. You should know that he lives here. And she brought out Johnny Shines to play blues with, with her. And my immediate reaction was, well, that's Mr. Shines. What's he doing up there? <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, went back home, 
told my dad, it's like, Dad, you're not going to believe this, but Mr. Shines plays the blues. He's a musician. And my dad was like, really? That's interesting. And I said, yeah. And, and he like travels all over the world to play music. He, he, and my dad, that's, that's impossible. There's no way. That's impossible. Not Mr. Shines, you know, or I think he just called him Shines, but not Mr. Shines. So ne- next time Mr. Shines comes in the store, my dad's like, Shines, my son tells me that you play the guitar. And, and Mr. Shines like, yep, I sure do, Mr. Bird. He goes, and he says that you play f- and for people, for crowds, that you travel, that you've been to Scandinavia. And, uh, and Mr. Shines was like, yes, sir. Yeah, that, that happens. You know, I've done that. And my dad was like, well, what? Mr. Sh-? He said, Shines, why wouldn't you tell us this? Why would you not tell us that you're a musician and that you play music? And he said, well, you know, it just never came up. And uh, <laughs> so, I mean, and Johnny Shines is part of his legend is that he might have been the, one of the last, if not the last guy to play with Robert Johnson, to learn from Robert Johnson. And so he's a pretty significant cat. And of course, besides all that uh, mythology junk, he's great. He was a great musician, great guitar player. And uh, later, as I grew in, in my later teens, he started playing more and more in Tuscaloosa. As he got older, he stayed closer to home and and uh, I even had a, a a friend in high school that played with him. And but you know, when you're just around somebody and you just see him as the guy that needs windshield wipers or the guy that needs a tail light, <laughs> just <laughs> you know, the late. My mom told me one time Harper Lee came back to Monroeville, and uh, and it was a scandal because she was wearing black, and worse than that, she was wearing black jeans. Like pants. She was wearing pants in public, you know? <laughs> she was down at the courthouse and she was in a black jeans and a black turtleneck and that and that was the scandal. Was <laughs> you know, there was there was no it was like now now granted she got some a lot of grief for writing about her hometown. But over time she's become, you know, quite appreciated and loved. Uh, I would say, even by the folks of Monroe County. But when you grow up around people, whether it's Bear, Bryant, or Johnny Shines, or Harper Lee, you, they're, just, they're just people, you know? It's, they're just people. Well, my first trip, I've, I've been to Nashville through the years playing music. I never thought about living here. Um, I spent my, up up until my late 20s, I was completely estranged from my country music roots. I'd had somebody try to explain, I'd had a professor try to explain Graham Parsons to me, and that was very eye-opening. And I understood the connection between the Birds and Poco and, and, and some other bands that kind of bridged the rock and roll and country stuff. But I never, ever thought of country music as cool. I thought it might be, you know, the white man's blues, or I thought it might be working class uh, poetry. Uh, I, mean, I could hear that and appreciate that. But, I, it, you know, I, I, I say to people a lot of times, I, I don't think country music is for children. I think it's for adults. You know, that's the way I look at it. I mean, don't come home a-drinking is not for kids, you know, I mean, it's just not. Fist City is not for kids. 
You know, I mean, just as a for instance. So, um, one dying and a burying, Roger Miller. That's not for children, man. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's for very few adults, frankly. <laughs> and, uh, but, and I think it took me becoming an adult, becoming an adult to, uh, to fully realize and appreciate, probably through my own life experience of just growing, that uh, I was very connected to country music, very connected. Uh, and it took my buddy Slim Chance down in Atlanta having me get up and play guitar with him and just learning country songs. And we did, in Atlanta, the Slim Chance and the Convicts would do The Race Is On, Pretty Vacant, um, and, oh gosh, you know, uh, Sweet Home Alabama or something. I mean, it was just like, it didn't make any sense. You know, those three things, in my mind, didn't go together. <laughs> but... But it took a, and it, and I, you know, I was in grad school in Atlanta, but I, uh, uh, and so I was still approaching life very analytically and, and, uh, less experientially. And, uh, so, uh, I was, I couldn't stop playing music. I tried and tried to stop, but I couldn't stop playing music. And so at some point, I just gave up on finishing my doctorate, came to it, uh, came to Nashville in 2001. And, uh, within, three or four weeks, it felt like home in a way that Atlanta never really felt like home. Atlanta felt like the big city. And I, and I, and I have dear, dear friends there and I love Atlanta. I miss the Braves and I miss people that know how to drive. And <laughs> I miss a lot of things about, it. I miss the food. Uh, but that said, um, I moved to Nashville in two, 2001 and I, and was very quickly realized that it felt like home, that it was here. I could, write music, play music, be a musician and not feel like I'm an adolescent or that I'm in, in extended adolescence or that I'm, you know, not uh, being true to my adult responsibilities of being a parent or just being an adult, just being a grown up, that you could be a musician, you could be a songwriter, you could pursue this art, if, for lack of a better word, and you could do it with a with and look yourself in the mirror. <laughs> and not feel like a kid or not feel, you know, I'm such a working class background, essentially, that uh, I always had this voice, you know, it's okay, but this is for kids. It's okay, but this is not working. It's okay, but, the, you know, and, but I had that same voice when I was reading 1,500 pages a week in grad school. You know, you think, I'm working on my PhD. This is a good, this would be like progress. It's a good thing. And my parents, they, they appreciated it, and they understood it, and they approved of it. But I had a voice in my head going, you know, this is great. But this is, You're in the library. You've been here all day, and you've been reading a lot. and doing, It's not working. It's not real work. And so moving to Nashville for me uh, was uh, being able to, to, to play music and feel okay about it, not feel crazy, not feel irresponsible, you know, feel like a real person. You and I are both like big music fans, and this is a great place to be a fan of music. Yeah. We get to witness a few things on a nightly basis that you just don't <laughs> see in other parts of the world. That's for sure. Uh, man, I'll have to think a second, because it's every week something weird happens. Well, one time I was at the Radio Cafe when it was still around, Radio Cafe, and somebody said, uh, hey, I let me introduce you to the 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 best English guitar player ever. 
ever lived. I went, and I looked at the guy, and I said, you don't look like Albert Lee. <laughs> and of course it wasn't. It was, but it was Ray Flack, you know, which is he's a great. <laughs> like, and I just insulted like a really great. But I, I, I thought I, I thought they were kidding. But you, but in Nashville, somebody when somebody's introducing you to the greatest, fill in the blank, they might be the greatest. You know, they, they, it could be happening, and you know, and you're just going, oh yeah, they're the greatest, sure. Oh yes. Yeah, I see. Never mind. <laughs> just forget what I sat down with a young lady. Um, and we were talking about music and it was just music, music, music. And then I said, well, so I didn't have anybody in my family that did music. Do you have somebody in your family that did music? And, you know, oh, yeah, my dad, dad, my dad's a musician. Oh, OK. And as I talked to her, I'm like, oh, he's like a professional musician. And she said, Yeah. I said, oh, so you grew up in Nashville because your dad is a professional musician. And she said, yeah. I was like, oh, okay. And what was your name again? <laughs> uh, Hillary Williams. I'm like, oh, okay. Williams. Was your grandfather in the music <laughs> business? <laughs> and she said, well, yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, I don't know what I've said over the last two hours, you know, but just forget, just forget whatever I said. <laughs> I have no idea what I said, but it, I mean, it was, you know, come on. It's like, come, that's not fair, you know? <laughs> it's like, oh, I, I hate to use people's real names, but um, it's like Jerry Rowe. I saw him at the coffee shop. And I said, Jerry, I haven't seen you. you. You haven't been here for a while, and and uh, you've been out in L.A. in rock bands. That's awesome. And this was a young guy when when I moved here. I was playing downtown, and we couldn't find a drummer. And so Dave Rowe recommended his son Jerry to play drums. And we're like, sure, man, that'd be cool. I mean, he was only nineteen or something, underage, but he was perfectly fine, and he did a great job. And so I'd known Jerry since two thousand one, and then he was here. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say I forget the exact year he was here. He was here a few years ago, and I said, what are you doing here, man? He goes, well, I, I came here, and my, my grandfather passed away. I'm like, oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. He goes, yeah, thank you, and uh, he goes, but I'm here for that. Uh, and we continued to talk, and he said that he, he was really happy because he was getting his dad's, his grandfather's Bronco, and he was just he was so happy to have his grandfather's Bronco. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, how long are you in town? Well, I'm going to be here for the tribute at Douglas Corner. I'm like, oh, okay. The tribute, okay, for your grandfather, he, and he said, "Yeah." I said, "Jerry, you have to forgive me, but who's your grand? Who was your grandfather?" Well, Jerry Reed. I was like, uh, "I said what?" He said, "Yeah, Jerry. I'm named after him." You know, I'm like, and I looked at Jerry. I'm like, "Well, you look like Jerry Reed, so that makes perfect sense to me." But I'm, I said, "Jerry, when were you going to tell me this?" You know, so well, you know, it doesn't. It's like. Hello, I play drums, and I'm Jerry Reed's grandson. You know, <laughs> like no, I mean, you don't want to hang out with somebody to do that anyway. But I'm just saying, no, he Jerry was, and that's just I can't tell you how many times you talk to people, you go, oh, that's your uncle, oh, that's your grandfather, it oh, that's every your week or two cousin. Well, I live on Grinstead, and uh, good old Pete Finney, when he found out where I live, he said Grinstead, huh? I said yeah. He goes, yeah, you know, Harlan Howard lived on Grinstead. I'm like really. He said, yes, sir. And when Harlan made a little more money and he got a bigger house, he uh, rented his house to Roger Miller. 
I was like, man. <laughs> I said, so this street has some pretty good songwriting mojo on it, you know? I never knew that. Yeah. They're both in East Nashville. Yeah. And, and, and you know, Irina, my girlfriend, says, this, this street has making money from songwriting mojo. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why did you have to hear that? <laughs> Well, um, another aspect of living in Nashville is that you do meet people that uh, you've known your whole life, you've admired, looked, up, looked up to, respected, thought of. They're part of your life, and then you meet them, and you're supposed to have a conversation or you're supposed to be able to speak effortlessly. I mean, they're just people, as we were saying earlier. They're just... So <clears throat> I got to do a, uh, be on the... A compilation. It was actually I got. To, it was the remake of "Songs of Fox Hollow," uh, Red Beat Records. Eric Brace, Marianne, uh, Eric and Peter. Eric Brace, Peter Cooper produced this record, and Tom T. Hall was sort of helping them oversee the whole projects. And we reproject, re and we went to Fox Hollow, his home, his his farm, to record the record. So I knew I was going to meet Tom T. Hall, for example. And I thought, okay, well, I just don't want to get, you know, I, I'll just let everybody else talk. I don't have anything to say. I just want to listen. I just want to be there. Don't want to make a fool of myself. And then, of course, at one point, he and I are in a room by ourselves. I'm like, now what? What do, what, what do you say to Tom T. Hall? How do... So I just thought, well, uh, I saw you had this old Martin guitar. And so, and he's the storyteller. So I said, well, Mr. Hall, that's a beautiful guitar. What year is it? Oh, that's a 37, 38, whatever it was. And I said, how'd you get that thing? Oh, you want to hear that story? And he proceeded to tell me this entire story of how Johnny Rodriguez, who who was a little guy, he was, this is a, what do you call those Martins? The, the, the triple lot, the small one. Like a parlor? Parlor, yeah. And uh, it was a small guitar. And so he told me that uh, it was at the Opry backstage. Johnny Rodriguez's manager had made him play this little guitar, this little Martin. And because um, Marty Robbins played a parlor guitar, a small guitar. And so Johnny Rodriguez's manager said, hey, you need this. This is good. This is, it looks good with Marty. You're a little guy. This guitar will look good on you because, you know. And so Rodriguez went out on stage, played it. Hated it. Came back backstage at the Opry, bashed it against the wall, and uh, left it in pieces. Broke the headstock, I believe. And uh, and Tom T. Hall told me that he looked at his friend and said, "Hey, grab that. Taking it home, I can fix it." And he took that guitar home. This was before he had a hit record. Before Tom T. Hall had really written very much of anything. That was a, at least that was a smash hit. And uh, he took that guitar home, fixed it, and wrote all these great, amazing songs on that guitar. And all I could think of was, whoa, what what a great, thank goodness I thought of the right question. <laughs> because, and I was like, ah, oh, the storyteller, of course. If I could just get him going, I don't, then I don't have to, you know, I don't have to make small talk. And I don't know, maybe that's small talk to some people. But for us, for musicians, for guitar players, for songwriters... 
I could, I, that was all, I, I mean. That's everything. That's everything. I didn't need anything else. Uh, I used to work at a little music store and when I, when I, here in Nashville, and a friend called me and said, John Prine needs a drum set for his sons. And I told him to come see you. I'm like, okay. So I'm like, woo wee. And uh, John Prine, okay. So, and coincidentally, some buddies had recorded a song I'd written, Eric and Peter, and they played it at a show. And Tom, I'm sorry, and uh, John Prine was at the show, and Prine came up to them after their entire show and said, uh, great job, guys. And they were, whoa, they were, they were amazed, and they were happy he was there. And he said, great job, guys. I especially like that last song you did, Silent Night. That was a good song. And both Eric and Peter were like, yeah, we didn't write that one. <laughs> Our friend John Bird wrote that song. Well, that's a good one. <laughs> and so all I could think of was John Prine's coming. I'm not going to tell him that story. I'm not going to tell him that story. I'm not going to tell him that story. And so he comes, and it's at the close of the business day. And so we spent a long time figuring out what drum set for his sons, and we figured out the drum set. And he was just such a great guy, so easy to talk to, just a good – just a guy, you know, hello. And – um. So finally, I kind of caved in. I said, well, I, was, I have this story I wasn't going to tell you, but uh, you heard a song of mine, and you liked it. And he's like, I did. I'm like, yeah. And I told him the story. He goes, I remember that. Silent Night. I was like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, yeah, that's a good song. I said, well, man, can I put that on my website or something? <laughs> you think it's a good song? No, I, he, he was just really sweet and just easy to talk to guy. At the end of the night, though, and my manager, the store manager, was like, "Oh my goodness, John Prine! Oh my goodness, John Prine!" So at the end of the, <laughs> so at the end of the night, I'm helping him load the drum set out, and I said, "Well, Mr. Prine, if I ever make any money in the music business, uh, I'll buy you a beer or a cup of coffee." And John Prine goes, "Well, John, if I ever make any money in the music business, I'll buy you a, a beer or a cup of coffee." <laughs> Well, I'm, I, I can be a pretty hateful guy, and so far, I haven't talked bad about anybody. And I don't know how you've managed that, Otis, but uh, <laughs> you just steered me in the right direction of not talking bad about things. Because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have two, my two favorite bumper stickers. If you're not pissed off, you're not paying attention. And if you don't feel lucky, you're a jerk. <laughs> it's actually another word, but that's okay. But Buck Jones was this relentlessly positive guy from Texas. And I can only take one or two relentlessly positive people in my life. They just cramp my style, sort of, you know? And, 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 and because the relentlessly positive, somehow they come off as phony or fake. And he wasn't. And so I couldn't, you know, I couldn't dismiss him or I couldn't, I couldn't just pigeonhole him. He was just a really sweet, positive, um, and not, 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 not simply naive, certainly not stupid, hard worker, loved and was committed to music and playing music and getting better. I played guitar for him, uh, as a lot of folks around Nashville did. 
but I played guitar for him. First time I ever played at the Hall of Fame was with Buck. And um, so we worked together at the Billy Block show many, many years ago. And um, so we had did, we had played guitar for him and done some traveling. A lot of people moved to Nashville from all over the world, really, but especially all over the United States. And they come here to get better and to be better singers, better songwriters, better guitar players. But the people from Texas come here to talk about how great Texas is. And they won't shut up about it. Like when Buck would say, John, let me buy you a beer. Can I get you a beer? I would say, yeah, Buck, I'll, I'll, give me a, a Miller Lite. I always drink the worst beer possible. And uh, he said, sure, no problem. And he always brought me back a Shiner Bob. It didn't matter. I mean, and at some point he would say, John, let me get you a beer. And I'm like, you, I, you know what I want. And you're going to bring me a Shinerbach. He goes, no, no, I'll get, I'll get you what you want. Always brought me a Shinerbach. So he's one of these Texas guys, right? Texas. But he was such a sweet person and such a, um, just a decent guy. Uh, we traveled together and uh, we went to, on, on this, you know, fateful trip to Texas. We went out there and, we were traveling on, is it I-30 or 35? I can't remember. I think it's 35. Yeah, and uh, we, we were about uh, a half hour outside of uh, Dallas, and we had a flat tire. And he called. We tried to change the tire, and it was, was kind of difficult to change the tire, and it was 1.30 in the morning or whatever. And, and so he realized, you know, hey, I have AAA, man. I'm like a professional. I, why are we, we don't have to do this. Let's, let me call AAA. So trip, they, he called AAA, and um, and AAA, it was freezing, too. It was cold, and uh, it was in March. And he called AAA, and they said, well, we need to know what mile marker you're at. And so he said, okay. And he kind of, without saying too much, he just sort of jumped out of the car and said, I got to go find the mile marker. And I was like, uh, I don't know if that's a good idea. Or, you know, why do you have to do that? Or just tell them about where we are, because... We were in between exits, but they could find us. And um, so he went looking for the mile marker, and he found he went to the nearest one or whatever. And I couldn't. He he went out of sight. I couldn't see him. And he crossed over to the access road to come back because that would be safer than walking on the interstate, obviously. And uh, even at one thirty in the morning, so he crossed over the access road. And uh, he was hit by a car, by a drunk driver. Um, I did not see it. It wasn't very far from where I was, but I didn't see it or hear it. I had my windows up. I wasn't outside the car, or I probably would have heard it. Um, and I sat in the car, and, and I, I did not see the accident. I did not see the—cars I, I he, cars went on the access road, but I didn't see anything happen. And— after a few minutes, I started calling him saying, you know, Buck, come on back, man. I'm sitting on the interstate. I'm sitting on the highway. You know, it's, that's dangerous, and we don't need to be out here. And blah, blah, blah. and uh, hurry back. And because, you know, I'm older, I was he was a good 15 years younger than me. Yeah, I'd say maybe 20 years younger than me. I felt some responsibility for him. He's a young guy and, and, and that sort of thing. But he also... He was one of these guys that he loved the idea that he could be conscientious and and he that he could take care of business and 
he, you know, he was a stand-up guy, and so he really was glad he had AAA, and he wanted to go find the mile marker and get back and get things taken care of, and we were going to get where we were going, and everything's going to be cool. We were headed to his parents' house, and um, so when I saw police cars, I started saying, "Buck, you got." I was calling him, going, "Buck, you got to get back here. There's police stuff going on. We don't need. We don't want to be a part of that." So at some point, the police officer came to my window at the, on the, in the car, and he said, what are you doing here? I'm like, well, my buddy went looking for the mile marker, bought the whole story, and he said, well, there's been an accident, and, there, and, and there's been a fatality. And I was like, no, I can't. Well, okay, but that can't have anything to do with us. You know, it can't have anything to do with us. So the police officer said, well, you're going to have to come over and get in the car with me because, uh, you know, it's a it's – a, Crime scene. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Okay. So I get in his car. And he said, listen, there's a young man that he, that's been hit and killed. And he gave me a description. And I said, well, okay, it could be, you know, Buck. But, I mean, he said he's blonde hair and he's got a goatee. I'm like, goatee? I don't remember goatee, you know. And, uh, and he's got a plaid shirt. I said, no, Buck had a leather jacket on. No, it's, it, can't, it can't be Buck. And he said, uh, he doesn't have his ID. And I was like, Can, do you mind taking a look at the body? And I was like, man, I don't want to do that. I said, but you know what? I want it to be some guy with a mustache and a gray beard. No, <laughs> I want it to be bald-headed. You know, I, want, I was like, I'll look at anybody. I'll look at anybody in any condition and then I'll know, and it's not Buck. You know what I mean? That's the way I was thinking of it. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll go look. And I'm telling you, uh, Otis, I went and I, and I looked at uh, Buck's face, and he didn't have his cowboy hat on. He didn't have his leather jacket on. And he had a, a little goatee that I didn't remember. And I was like, and, you know, this kid was so alive. I don't know if you've ever been anybody around anyone that passed away. But when somebody's in the hospital and they're dying or they're on their deathbed and they're near death kind of thing, that's one thing, as bad as that can be. But when somebody is completely full of life and then in one split second, they're not. I was like, that's not Buck. That can't be Buck. And so without asking permission, I just... I took off running to the to the car, the um, Cherokee Jeep Cherokee, and I opened it up, and there was his leather jacket, and there was his ID, and the, you know, and that's when I, and I then I knew it was Buck, you know, because. And uh, so I went back to the officer and I said, well, I know this is going to sound crazy, but it is. I think it is, you know, now. And uh, so that's what happened. Um, it, was, it was pretty horrific. But I will say this. I, I'm telling you right now, it's some kind of miracle that every weekend we're not telling this story. Because think about how many friends, how many young people, how many people are out going to a gig, coming from a gig, it's two in the morning, they've been drinking, or everybody in the van's been drinking except the driver, and he's really tired. 
not to mention other contraband or whatever. And it's, you know, all I can think of is that this could happen every day, every every weekend, every because you know there are bands, there are songwriters, there are people that are just trying to get home, trying to get somewhere, and they're out on a weekend with all the amateur drinkers. You know, <laughs> they're out on the party weekend where they're just they went to play a gig, they went to do, but you know, it, it's so anyway. That's what happened, and and uh, came you know I called first person I called. Uh, <clears throat> called my girlfriend, and I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, uh, call Davis Reigns. I was like, yeah, because, you know, listen, Davis is uh, one of the for real songwriters. He's a dear friend. He used to be a prison guard. He's seen a lot of terrible stuff. I called Davis, and I said, man, this is what happened. And Davis knew Buck. Davis loved Buck. Without skipping a beat, Davis goes, um, man, Buck's family is going to have friends. They're going to have people. You need friends, and you need people. You turn around and come home. And without missing a beat, I mean, he just said, here's what you do. You turn around, and you come home back to the people that can take care of you. There's nothing you can do for Buck. And his parents are going to have people that can take care of them. So you come home. And that was, whew, that. The wise words. Yeah. It, well, it was the right thing for me. It was the right thing. And so I had a dozen people calling me about every 20 minutes. How you doing? What's going on? Where are you? I'm in Texarkana. You know, I'm in Little Rock. I'm in Memphis. You know, and they, they just kept me going. Because, you know, I'd been driven. I'd been driving. We'd been riding all day and night, you know, to get to Texas. You know, it's a long, it's a, it's a haul. And so I got almost to Dallas and turned right around, turned around. I, after waiting five or six hours for them to process this accident scene and, frankly, crime scene, since it was a drunk driver um, that caused it. Um, let me end it on, let me, about Buck, let me just say I recorded one of Buck's songs because he only wrote a few songs before he, he was gone. And I went to Texas with him many times, South By and all that, you know, and, and uh, one time we were going to Texas and he goes, John, play me every song you ever wrote. I'm like, what? He goes, play, play me, just, we got 10 hours, we got 14 hours, just play me every song you ever wrote. I'm like, Buck. Like, I'm serious. So he made me get out the guitar and I just started playing all these songs. And he's like, that's a good one. Oh, I like that one. Oh, I like the oh the bridge is good, you know. And he wasn't being a critic. He was just like he was he was being sincere. <laughs> and he was very optimistic and very hopeful and very, you know, positive. And uh yeah, I'd written this song, Fond Farewell. Um a, a little bar here in town closed and they wanted people to sing songs about the bar, and so I wrote a song for it called A Fond Farewell. And I sang that song as one of the many songs I sang for Buck as that, that I'd written. And he's like, oh, that's the best one. That's it. That is the song. That's the best one. I was like, well, you know, my mom likes Jackknife and my mom likes Silent <laughs> Night because I mentioned moms in those two, you know. But he goes, no, 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 the Fond Farewell, that is it. That's the one. And uh, I was like, okay, cool, man. And if, so, of course... Even though it wasn't written for Buck, uh, it's always 
for it's always about Buck when I sing it. <laughs> I wrote it for a, a bar and 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 all that, you know. So it's sentimental, but it's like, well, now every time I sing it, you know, it's that's it's about Buck. So. <laughs> I appreciate you uh, inviting me over to your living room and and chatting with me, man. Well, yeah, it's okay. It feels weird. It feels weird. You know. <laughs> Frustrations. You're just gonna make me edit that out, aren't yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> of course. You know, I'm just. Oh, anyway. Well, I appreciate it, man. Oh, yeah, of course, of course, Otis. Thanks for being a pal. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank John for inviting me over to his house in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about John at johnbird.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.